0: Here's what I'm going to try to do. We got so many questions. I'm going to try to answer them because I promised we would answer them at the end of the series. I'm trying to do two things tonight. I want to answer your questions and talk about praying about God's will because we've been talking about God's will for so long. And last week we talked about doing God's will and really wrestling with what it means to do it and stop talking about it, but to actually do something. Here are the questions you guys asked. I'm going to run through them as fast as possible. You can ask a question if you want. I might run right over you. Here we go. Just to summarize, because we said we were going to do it, and I promise I want to be a person of my word. As I was looking at this, I thought it's too much to do, but we're going to try to do it. All right. Can we ever know, can we ever fully know what God's will is? No. 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 <laughs> because it includes his sovereign will. Is there such a thing as the perfect will of God? The yeah. answer depends. If you believe the traditional view, there's kind of a center of God's will. If you believe the alternative view that we've been studying, it just kind of says, you know what? There is wisdom to choose within God's moral will, and His perfect will relates to His sovereignty. And by the way, just so you remember, every one of these questions came from you. So I didn't think of the questions; these are your questions on cards that you sent in and emails. All right, where in the Bible is the idea of multiple wills of God? If you're the person who asked that question, quick, write this down. There are all the places. Okay, there are verses. So there is scriptural support for God's sovereign will. We went over that in one of our CDs. There is moral will. There's scriptural support. What we found is that there's really not much individual will scriptural support. In other words, all the scriptures that seem to talk about individual will actually, in context, more likely talk about a moral will. So if you're one of the people who believe there's an individual will, it doesn't really have any direct scriptural support. At least that's what we said. All right. Does God have specific plans down to the day and the minute? Yes, as part of His sovereign will, but it's not revealed to us. All right. Next question. How specific or vague is God's will? Very specific, okay? But it's a sovereign will that he knows down to the detail. Yeah. So there's a quick question on that one and the last one. And doesn't that go back to the other question that it depends on the way to do the traditional or alternative? Right. Definition. And just so that we're clear, I'm going to follow the, because we studied the alternative view for so long and because I think most of us kind of settled there. By the way, I want to get, tell you a quick thing. The person who was like really wrestling with me the most was Randy, you know, and Randy in our conversations outside of the group has come up and said, you and I have ended up in the same place. I've studied all week and I think we're on the same page, which I thought was good confirmation because somebody who was really wrestling with it came back and said, I I think I agree now. So how small can things be and still be included in God's will? Uh, Very small. Everything is part of His sovereign will. You can't escape it. This one was one that a lot of you asked. Does God's will change? Answer? Yes. No. It does. No. The answer is God's sovereign will is unchanging. God's moral will, which is in the Bible, is also unchanging because it flows from his thing. What you guys are talking about is evidences in Scripture where it looks like God was negotiating with people or discussing with them. And I'm going to leave that till the very end because that's a valid point. But God's will cannot change you can't thwart it and he's not going to change it because it's his it's from the beginning okay there are a lot of questions that we can answer really quickly some of your questions were like if god's will doesn't change let's go through all these questions if it does change how is it accomplished if god's will can change does he know that it's going to change does he plan to change it can you change god's will do we have the right to change it Does man have the ability to thwart or hinder God? If someone else changes God's will, do their actions change God's will for me? Can I force God's will? The answer is good news for all of those is it doesn't change. So all those questions we can answer really easily. It doesn't change. If God's will cannot change, then why is an individual responsible for sin? A very good question that we wrestled with about the difference between God's sovereignty and that is freedom. We have freedom. So we still have responsibility. You can look up these verses, and this is the whole tension between sovereignty and free will that we spent our first series on, our first session. And I'm just going to say, if you want to wrestle with it further, let's do it, because the church has been doing it for thousands of years. So we're not going to resolve it in one night or one session or one series. But we know that scripture teaches we're still responsible, regardless of how extensive God's sovereignty is. Does God ever will bad circumstances or trials to happen to make us stronger? That was a really good question, too, from somebody. Because it really cuts the car of, does God actually just will bad things to happen? Here's the answer that I think we said. It's kind of a little long, but I'll just read it to you. As part of God's sovereign will, God may allow certain things to happen. And I underlined allow. And he always uses everything, good and bad, to accomplish his sovereign will. I don't believe that God zaps his people, even though we know that God does discipline his people. So God does also allow us to be tempted. So does he allow bad things to happen? Possibly? yes, yeah, sure. Does he allow people to be disciplined? Yeah. Does he tempt them? Yes. Uh, is, he, is it his will that his people suffer? Well, it's part of a sovereign will, but we've got to wrestle with that. And one. that one's going to be, it's a whole subject of how does God allow and deal with bad things? Did you want to add something, David? Um, In God's original perfect creation, bad things weren't there to be dealt with. So as part of that answer... That's the allowance. I mean, to give us the freedom, he had to allow something to happen, including allow Satan to come into the garden and allow the temptation and allow the fall to accomplish his greater sovereign will. And, And it's our sin nature that actually creates the bad situations. I think in a lot of cases, you know, But I don't know, like, you know, when somebody says, well, what about a hurricane? Our sin nature can't cause that. And, yeah, that's probably true. But I don't know that God sent that hurricane to destroy a bunch of people. I think what he did is he just lets, he allowed it to happen. Because we know that God's sovereign will is so pervasive that if he didn't want it to happen, it could not happen. Does God's will include sin? Well, it goes right into what we're talking about. God does not will for us to sin God hates sin, but sin can't be... It's not going to thwart his sovereign plan. He can use whatever choice we make, and it's still going to accomplish his sovereign plan in our life and in his overall plan. Ryan. Okay, what I'm getting out of this, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think God has his will, and we can choose to live and choose where we want to go and want to be in his will or out of his will. So if we choose, hey, you know what, we're going to go and, and be like Adam and eat the fruit then that wasn't God's will, but we chose to live outside of that will and his purpose, right? That's outside of his moral will. And I don't want to rehash the whole conversation, but the idea is God's sovereign will is so pervasive that because it couldn't happen if it wasn't his allowance to let it happen, okay, that brings us into a whole discussion that I don't want to slide into because it goes right back into the debate we had the first session. And it's too deep for us. We'll never get through these questions and we're going to stick on these, in other words. Yeah, Philip? Uh, would you say that God's will allow sin? It does allow sin. I think it's dangerous for us to say that God causes sin or causes us to sin. That's not true. Yeah. Okay, but what I'm saying is if you sin, it's still going to work into the fabric of what he's doing. You can't thwart his sovereign will. All right, does God's will include pain, suffering, the fall, and the cross? I think it's the same answer. We're doing the same thing. Is it God's will if I'm born with a disease? Man, these guys, You guys have some tough questions. My answer is nothing can happen outside of God's sovereign will. From that perspective, the answer is yes. And I put an asterisk next to it because you got to make sure it's part of his, we're talking about his sovereign will here. This is a very difficult thing. He could have prevented it, but he allowed it for some reason that works into his sovereign plan and we'll never understand why. That's how big of a God we serve. We're not going to be able to just write it off and say, well, he's just on vacation and happened while he wasn't looking. That's, that's not our God. Let me give you the example that maybe will give some, some context to this. I'll search for an example of God's sovereign will being played out. The story that comes to mind is David and Bathsheba. You guys know David and Bathsheba, right, sinned. He sent her husband into battle to die after he slept with another man's wife. It's Uriah was the man that he sent into battle. And then Nathan, the prophet comes to David and says, this is a very bad thing you've done. And he does it through a roundabout way. So we'll make it a very short story. But he pronounces to David that because you've done this thing, your son will die. David had actually said, whoever did this thing should die. But Nathan says, no, you will be forgiven. You will be spared, but your son will die. David pleads with the Lord for seven days. He does not eat. He fasts. He pleads with the Lord, please save my child. But the child dies. God's not going to be moved. Even by David, child dies. Then David immediately gets up, washes himself off, and goes back to, instead of like fasting or mourning, he goes back to eating. And when they say, what are you doing? I mean, you were killing yourself when the son was sick, and now that he's dead, you should be mourning. Instead, you're almost celebrating. He's saying, it's the Lord's will. While he was alive, I had a chance to at least plead with the Lord, but now I know the Lord's will is done, it's done, and he goes on. Now, it's a sin to have done what he did with Bathsheba, for sure, adultery. It's a sin to have sent her husband out into battle and kill him. It's murder. I mean, he caused his death. This is one of the most heinous acts recorded in the Bible. Then David, after his son dies, he goes in with Bathsheba and has another son. What's the name of the son that David and Bathsheba have? Solomon. What's beautiful about God working out even our sin into the framework of his sovereignty is if you read the genealogy of Christ, which some of us think, like, why did they even put it in there? But I want to just read you these words from the genealogy of Christ. This is Matthew 1.6. It says, And Jesse, the father of King David... This is reading through the genealogy. We're, like, showing up right in the middle. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was... It doesn't say that. It says, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Even in the genealogy, it's recorded. Not that his wife was was Bathsheba, but the sin is meant to be recorded into the genealogy. Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. God brings glory and brings even the birth of his son into this world through a heinous act and says, whatever you do, I'm still going to work it all out the way I want it to do. That's how he can take, I'm, I'm sure he did not approve of what David did with Bathsheba. I mean, he caused the son to die as a result of it, Ryan. I think that uh, I think David, with, with him praying, though, I think that he, was, he obviously believed that he might be able to change God's will. That's why he was praying about it. So I think that we still have some sort of say with our faith and our prayer that we can actually change God's will for us. Yeah, it, let, me, let me just talk about the changing God's will. It doesn't change. God's will doesn't change, but you got to remember God is not a God who sits at the beginning of time. He is at every moment of time instantaneously. So when I say God's will doesn't change, you might be having a conversation with him and he might be deciding or changing or conversing with you, but his will doesn't change because he's at every point at the same time infinitely. That's what makes it true that God is sovereign. He's predetermined everything. He knows things. He doesn't change anything, but allows you to have that conversation because he's at every point infinitely as opposed to in time like you are, where you know it one day, you argue him the next day, something else happens. He's at every one of those points at the same time. Let me see if I get to some lighter questions. (sighs) If all of our days are written like the Bible says, and God chooses us, then why does he punish the people he doesn't choose? It seems like God creates sinners and then punishes them for being so. Uh, That's a good question, too. Well, there's a split in the church on this. Some teach that God has predetermined those whom he's going to call. While others believe that God allows everyone free choice and he restricts his sovereignty so that they can choose. The middle view that we talked about was one that says that God uses our free choice to accomplish his calling. What does that mean? That means I have two books for you to read on predestination and free will. If you want to go into this question any deeper, it seems like we could be here all night long on this topic. There is an answer to the question, but it's split in the church. To be honest, it's split. Some people believe that's just what God does. He creates a bunch of people and goes, I'm picking half of them or less. Other people say, nope, the choice is always there. God doesn't act sovereignly in this area, which seems a little strange to me, that there's an exception to the sovereignty. And then there's the middle view that a lot of people are struggling with to try to bridge both sides. I'll leave it there. If you want to read the middle view, I'll give it to you. How is the Old Testament calling different? Well, in the Old Testament, God called specific people. For the most part, he would intervene and say, you, now time for you to do something. I want you to do something. You're my prophet. You're my person. Go do this. Burning bush, that kind of stuff. There is a difference. But in the Old Testament, the difference was much more reliant on supernatural revelation, but only to a few people. We get the idea that everybody was getting supernatural revelations every day. The Old Testament covers many, many hundreds of years. And not much supernatural revelation per year, if you do an average does God have a will or plan for events after the second coming? Man, you guys are a curious group. This was a crazy question. Uh, well, here it is. If God's sovereign will is unchanging, then yes, he still has his will afterwards. He doesn't give it up just because we go to heaven. Uh, his moral will might change because when we get to heaven, we know that we're not going to be able to sin. So maybe that just becomes perfected in us somehow. All right. It's the best I could do with that. Does God have a will for non-Christians? What do you guys think? Does God have a will for non-Christians? Yeah. How many people think, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think he does. I think God's will is for everybody. I mean, everybody to obey him. I think God has everyone to, to follow him, to find him. I think that's his will for everybody. And I don't think that the things that God says are his moral will in the Bible are limited just to Christians. These are good for everyone. I mean, that's, it flows from his goodness, from his perfection, from his infinite knowledge, his wisdom. That's why he tells us to do these things, not just to say, hey, let's see if we can get these people to do some crazy stuff. So I think it would be good for everybody. But certainly his will is for everyone to obey and to follow him. How do I know God's will for my life? Well, we have said this enough times. Let's say it again. His moral will is abundant. Let's start there. With respect to anything else, unless he supernaturally reveals his sovereign will to you, you probably won't get any more specific instruction. All right. Now, I emphasize unless he gives you supernatural revelation, some of you, it's going to happen. Some of you are going to get that kind of revelation. Does God get involved in every aspect of my life? Does he care about every simple decision I make? Yes. But it's still part of his sovereign will. Should I ask God to bless me in all my projects? Sure. How about could you say no to that? No. Just do it on your own. Sure. Is there a perfect plan for my life? How can I discover it? Once again, there is a perfect plan within God's sovereign will but you can't discover it until it happens if you believe the alternative view. Yes, there's that asterisk kind of, if you believe the alternative view, okay? Which is, I think, what we kind of adopted Philip. I have a question on that. Then, like, if you're defining the perfect plan as God's the world, then won't you, always have a, won't you always be living the perfect plan for your life? Yes, that's really an astute comment, except that you just won't know it in advance. By the way, perfect is not perfect for you, perfect from God's perspective. Like, you might be a total, like, you might just be sinning your head off. That's not what God had in mind for you, but he's still going to use it and make it work the way he wants it, and it's going to be perfect from that perspective. I think he would still honor a life where you're doing what you're supposed to do. He would rather use that and rather that be the way that it is. Okay? All right. Somebody asked, what if I don't have a will? <laughs> don't worry, we'll still love you. <laughs> That's the answer. Do we all have the same will? You know what? In a way, we do. God's moral will is the same for everybody. Um, His sovereign will is going to be accomplished, but it's going to differ in our lives a little bit. It's going to differ. I mean, everybody's got an individual thing that God's going to do in your life, and overall his sovereign will is going to be accomplished. So I can't say we all have exactly the same thing that we're going to do. That, That wouldn't make sense. But the moral will is the same. And if you're tracking with what I'm saying, that's going to be most of what you're doing. If God does have a certain will for us, what consequences are in store for those who disobey? Good question. Briefly, we know that God disciplines his children. We know that we might be off track and might not live the fulfilled life that we we could have lived because his moral will is best for us. But, you know, and, and by the way, and if you don't find salvation, then that's not good either. <laughs> that, that, that ultimately ends in total badness, okay? But other than that, God's still not going to be thwarted, all right? So I'm not advocating you just do whatever you want. I'm just saying... Compared to sitting around waiting for his perfect individual for your life, that might be what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Well, there's the law of natural consequences and versus supernatural consequences. So if you were living um, a, li- a life and chose to disobey God, say you divorced just because, and you were the guy at fault, there will be natural consequences here on earth of living with the destruction of one or slash two families, da da da, da. So that's kind of a natural consequence that goes with that. Um, And then there's the supernatural part where God will deal with you directly as a person. I think that's a very good point to make, that that our our choice to disobey God or our choice just to do things to other people is going to create consequences here on earth. So yeah, the quality of all of our collective lives is going to get worse because we're doing the wrong things to one another. I agree with that. Will God be mad at you? I love this thing. Will God be mad at you? Will God be mad at you if you don't do his will or if you can't figure out his will? Well, he's always going to love you. He may be mad, put that in quotes. um, And he may go out of his way to discipline you because he loves you as a father. He may allow certain things to come into your life, a.k.a. like Job. But in the end, I mean, God wants us to follow his will because he commands us to obey him. Because he deserves, he's holy. He deserves our obedience for no other reason. Okay? And his love is still, he's still gonna love us. How do you know if he calls you into full time ministry? Well, we've talked about this when we talked about calling, except in the case of supernatural revelation, it's your choice to decide how to wisely use what God has given you in this lifetime. The best thing I would suggest you do is read First Timothy chapter 3. Actually, read the whole book of 1 Timothy. The reason I say this is because Paul had to decide who to take with him on his missionary journeys. If you read the book of Acts, when he's trying to decide who to take with him, there's no supernatural revelation that he take Timothy. Timothy didn't have a supernatural revelation that it was his will, his individual will for him to be a missionary or a minister. But Paul writes to Timothy later when he's telling Timothy how to pick other people to do the same thing. And he lays out certain criteria. Read those criteria. Do you fit those criteria? Does that match you? Is God saying, like, if you're going to be somebody who serves me, you should be like this. This is how my church should function. Maybe a good starting place is for you to figure out if you fit into that definition at all. Okay, There's a number of people who who want to do it, may read that and think, maybe this is not for me. So scripture actually gives us some guidance right from the start. We ignore that. Okay, Ask people around you as well. How do we test what God's will is for our life? Again, moral will is abundant. For everything else, use wisdom. We've used that wisdom view a number of times. Is it a sin or is it just preference not to follow his will? Well, I think it is sin not to follow his moral will, for sure. It's not just a preference. His moral will is commands that we should obey. We don't follow that, that's sin. If his moral will does not control, we have some freedom. Okay, and decide where we're going to be. How do you tell the difference between God's will and my own will? Well, unless you're violating God's moral will, you may not know. Philip already pointed out that if God's sovereign will is already at work in your life, your life is going to kind of be the way it's supposed to be. Right. That's one of the hardest things to fit into our small minds. That we may think we're making free choices, but somehow God is going to still make it exactly the way he wants us to do it. And there's that tension again between God's sovereignty and free will. And I have a feeling tonight, (laughs) when we break from all this, we may just spend the rest of the night just talking about sovereignty and free will. Can my will be God's will? Yes. Especially if you follow his moral will. If you follow his moral will, you're on track. Yeah. You think the danger is, though, reading into whatever you want into the Bible or reading into, you know, those ideas of, well, if my will is the same as God's will, then I can do whatever I want. I just feel like that's a real fine line that can be taken into, oh, good, then I'll just paint God, you know, that I'm God. And you go down the slippery slope that I think is dangerous. Yeah, I mean, let's take that. First of all, we know his sovereign will is going to be the boundaries that nobody can escape. Within that is his moral will, right? And in his moral will, it's very clear to us. These are things you do and don't do. These are the attitudes you should have, the ways you do things. If you're within that, you're okay. But you still have that, what we said was responsibility. Like if his moral will is unclear or doesn't command you to do one thing or the other, you know, like we talked about his moral will says he should evangelize others. His moral will doesn't tell you where. So you have have freedom to choose where. But if you choose a place where it really doesn't do any good or you don't do it at all, Well, if you don't do it at all, you're violating His moral will. But if you make an an unwise choice, it's not going to cost you your salvation. But he, at the end of the time, like we talked about in the parable of talents and other places, is going to say, you did not steward your freedom well. You've not been responsible with the freedom I gave you. I mean, sure, you were within my moral will, but you didn't do very good with it. So I think we do have to keep that responsibility in mind at all times. People have told me that God totally wanted them to have something like a parking space. I don't agree. I think the question was, does that happen? You know, I thought it was a silly question when I first heard it. Like, people told me that, they, that God wanted them to have a parking space. So is that God's will that they have the parking space? And I started thinking about it, thinking, you know what? Since everything is a part of God's sovereign will, the best I could say is if God didn't want them to have the parking space, they couldn't have had it. But since we don't know, the answer is... We just don't know if he actually caused it to happen, like he just made a car disappear or something, you know? (laughs) Most likely he didn't do that. So I think that it is part of his will in some strange inverse way, I guess, to say, yeah, because if he didn't want it to happen, it couldn't happen, but we won't know for sure. So you can't rule it out entirely and go, that's silly. Has anyone ever heard God's voice as a call to do something? Uh, actually the real question was anybody here in this room so maybe i should ask you is anybody here in this room ever heard god's voice audibly telling them to do something okay we at least we at least three or four so yes but it's a rare event but it does happen by the way does it happen like all the time like it like happen every day happen all uh, the time? time yeah one just one time yeah yeah okay so i think that's pretty good you know we'll have a little share later and you can tell us is it true that if I have a passion for something, that it's probably God's will? Maybe. Look, God gives us gifts. He gives us things to do. That's part of his, his plan. So it could be an indication. If something keeps coming up in conversation or on TV, could that be God or is that coincidence? Answer, stop watching TV. What are you doing watching your TV? You're looking for God in the TV. Actually, I think the answer is, it's most likely coincidence or what we call heightened awareness. Heightened awareness is when you're like thinking about something and you start to see it everywhere. It's just a natural phenomenon that happens. I tell people it's like when you buy a car and suddenly everybody's driving the same car as you, it's because you're like, now your, your awareness is heightened about what's happening. But it could also be the wisdom of other people that are speaking into your life. Maybe it is the Holy Spirit who's prompting them to bring certain things up. So I can't, again, rule out That it has to be coincidence, but we tend to read into coincidence a lot of stuff. Just be careful, all right. Again, God gives us freedom. Follow His moral will; you'll be okay. You won't have to be searching the TV for answers, you know. Can we discern God's will based on a feeling? I know you guys; some of you are not going to like this, but I think the answer is probably no. I put an asterisk next to it because if you follow the traditional will, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for feelings and impressions and, you know, those kind of things. You're hoping that you have peace and, and all that stuff. But if you follow the view that we've been studying, the alternative view, most likely, no, just follow the moral will. Unless he speaks to you in a strong, supernatural way, that'll probably divert you the other direction. All right. Will I ever get married? You guys are laughing, but I was probably on there like seven or eight times from different people. The answer? no. <laughs> it's God's will. It's only if you keep coming exodus <laughs> <laughs> only if you bring a friend no um only god knows only god knows there's no guarantee of marriage in the scriptures i mean chances are yes but i i, I don't really know like i remember when i got the question on the cards i wasn't really sure like this isn't really a question of like is it God's will that I get married? Like, it's a good question, but I wasn't sure how I was supposed to answer it, you know? Like, so I just thought, okay, only God knows. Does God care who I marry? Yes. Yes. Does God care who I marry? Yes. But be very careful. That doesn't mean that he has a person picked out for you. He may have a person picked out for you, okay? So let me look at the next question. So God does care. He cares about everything, He cares about everything infinitely, loves you infinitely. So yes, he cares. I I think we should never say that God doesn't care. Even when he gives us freedom to choose, he still deeply cares how we choose. But does God have a specific person for me to marry, like a soulmate, okay? Or are there many positive choices? I like that, positive choices, you know? (laughs) I wish I knew if this was a girl or guy who wrote this question. Positive choices. I was like, is there positive choices? Here is my answer to you glad I finally got your attention, by the way, on something. God may, and I underline may, he may have a specific person in mind, but it would be part of his sovereign will if he did. So unless he supernaturally reveals this, and please, I know, God, this is so, you guys find supernatural revelation when it comes to love in so many things, okay? (laughs) Unless he, like, shows up the way he did to Paul on the road to Damascus or something. So unless he supernaturally reveals it, you will not know for sure. For most of us, he does not, he does not have one specific person in mind. However, as part of his moral will, he does command us to marry a Christian. Okay? So at least I could tell you, I could usually tell you who's not in his will. Not that you're going to thwart his sovereign will, but I could tell you, like, do you think it's God's will for me to marry this person? Like, first question I ask is, are they a Christian? Because that just eliminates some of the people right off the bat. Beyond that, you have freedom. And by the way, just a little plug for our next series, when we talk about how to ruin your life by 40, which is a series that we're coming up, we are going to really spend time on marriage. Because what you do in this period of your life right now, in your early 20s, mid-20s, whatever, is going to directly impact your marriage and the rest of your life. All right? Does he ask some to remain single? Is there a mate out there for everyone? Well, this is kind of a yes or no. Does he ask some to remain single? Yes. Is there a maid out there for everybody? No. It's possible that you can go the rest of your life and be single. Now, I know I hear a lot of formulas. Well, but if he did that, that he'd give me the gift of celibacy and all this stuff. Like when we did our spiritual gifts inventory, that wasn't like high on anybody's list. I don't even think it was on I think couldn't find any scriptural support for it, really. But <laughs> anyway, we'll see. Stay tuned for our next series on that. Okay. Was it God's will for me to marry the person I married? Only if the person who asked this question is Lena. In that case it was definitely God's will that you married John and he is the only person for you. <laughs> Otherwise, I want to know who else was writing this question. If somebody's secretly married, let me know. You know, you guys are married. That's good. Okay. But I don't think you wrote this question. <laughs> So do you want to tell us why you were wondering? Like, is there like some second thoughts? Never mind. We'll talk about it later. (laughs) Let's talk talk about it at home. Does God have a will for my finances? Yes. God wants you to download our five-part CDs on money from the website. Just another plug. If you haven't downloaded our CDs on money in the kingdom for Christians who are struggling with what does God want me to do with money, I can't recommend it to you enough. Download it. Because if you're wondering about money in any way, we've probably covered it on that CD, and it's going to surprise you what God says about money. Okay, If you think money is all about rich man, camel, eye of the needle stuff, you've got a whole bunch of stuff in store. Is it okay to make money and live comfortably? Same answer. Download the five-part series. What if I want to do something that's a childhood dream, something secular, something that's not like saving Africa? You know, I think this totally summarizes the whole series right here. God gives us freedom to act in wisdom within his moral will. God gives us gifts and talents that we must steward. And that's a really important concept, stewardship. And we will be responsible for how we use those gifts and talents that we have. If you think it's best to use them in ways other than saving Africa, God's going to allow you to choose. Except that Where his sovereign will requires otherwise, you won't have a choice. You're not going to know in most cases, so you're free to choose. But someday, like we talked about last week, you'll stand to give account before Christ of what you did in your life, and that will be the moment when he says, I wonder how you did. Did you do it with wisdom? Did you choose wisely? Did you steward what I gave you? What's the difference between purpose and pursuit of happiness? Well, our purpose is to glorify God. That's chief among all things. We have responsibility and freedom for how we do it. God does not promise us happiness. Many people who found their purpose also found suffering, hardship, and even death. Let's not confuse purpose and happiness. If you're lucky enough to find the true purpose and you might know what it is, because a lot of times it might just be God's sovereignty pushing you along, you may not always know it. But if you do know it, it's not the same thing as happiness. He doesn't promise us happiness. Last one. Is it God's will that I eat at Alberto's? Why are you staring at me? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is absolutely. Yes. That's why God and his sovereignty allowed them to open up a location next to APU. Those are all the questions you asked, and we have answered them. There is one more you've asked, and I want to spend just a few minutes answering it if you give me about 10 minutes. We've been struggling with God's will and learning that his sovereignty is so all-encompassing that what he wants to happen will happen. And we go back to the question, somebody like David, why would David even pray about his son? If he knows that God's sovereignty is so overwhelmingly complete, why pray? Why should any of us pray? God's going to do what he's going to do. We know his moral will. We can follow that. In terms of a sovereign will, we have no control. He's just going to do what he wants. So why pray? Here's some observations I want to give you as you struggle with the concept of prayer because I hope that I haven't robbed you where you feel like I shouldn't pray anymore. I mean, God's just going to do what he's going to do. What does he need my input for? First of all, I want to point out that there's a difference between prayer and magic. And I've used this, and this isn't my own. This is a couple of people have kind of commented on the difference between prayer and magic. You see, magic is defined as... Appealing to supernatural forces to change the outside world. So in every religion you see some, well, I won't say every religion, many religions, you see an element of magic. You're praying to supernatural forces to change the external circumstances. And I love that one person reversed that and said prayer is kind of the opposite. You're praying to supernatural forces to change you. To prepare you for what's going to happen to supernaturally affect yourself inside. We're allowing God to work in us, not so much that the circumstance is going to change. By the way, it's okay to pray about circumstances changing. I don't want to take that away from you either. But magic believes that that's all prayer is, that it's nothing but if I say these words, I do these things, I, I, I pray to this higher being that something is going to change out there. Prayer is that and more because most often it's changing us. Now, I'm not going to talk about all of prayer in the next 10 minutes. We spent five weeks on prayer. You could download those CDs. We've covered most of these subjects before, and that's what I like about it. We keep coming back and touching subjects we've done before. But one of the things we did in our five-part series on prayer was we went through line by line of the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus gave us a model in the Lord's Prayer. And he said, when you pray, pray like this. Not pray those same words exactly every single time, but pray like this. Here's the steps and the model I want you to follow. And one of the lines of the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is telling us, pray for God's will. So when you ask how are we supposed to pray in light of God's sovereignty, Well, the Lord's prayer begins with our Father who art in heaven. You're praying about his holiness and his sovereignty and how much above you he is. And then you're moving to this next step. You're saying thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Well, we know what his will is. We've been studying it for so long now. Sovereign will, moral will. And if you believe there's an individual will, whatever it is, we know his will. We're praying that it be done. But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean for it to be done? Here's some things just to keep in mind. A couple tips about what we're actually praying for. So if you don't pray the Lord's Prayer every night, that's okay. Because Jesus didn't intend us for us to pray it literally every single time. But he's saying, in your prayer time, you should be praying that the Lord's will be done. It has some implications when you say, Lord, let your will be done. Number one, we're recognizing God's will is going to be done no matter what. We're recognizing his sovereignty. Thy will be done. We're saying it almost as a statement, a request, all at the same time. It's a fact. Your will will be done. And I accept that. Second implication is we're really giving thanks to God, regardless of what his will involves. Whatever his will brings. David did not want his son to die. But the moment that his son died, I'm not saying that David jumped up and was happy. But he knew what the Lord's will was, and he moved on. That's difficult for us. I put down here that the third one is learning to be pleased and look forward to God's will. You know, sometimes God's will is not something that's easy for us to look forward to. You guys know the story of Job. It's been cited so many times. Like, you know, if there's a bad luck guy in the Bible, it's Job, right? Every time something bad happens to somebody, we turn to Job. That's why we have the book of Job. To show us that, look, this is a whole behind-the-scenes look of what's going to happen. We see the whole interplay between the Lord and even Satan talking to the Lord, wanting to tempt Job. We get to see the whole scene. We get to see the idiots that are counseling him. We get to see all the things that befall him. We get to see his mindset. We see the Lord's mindset. Job 1, 20 to 22. Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Sometimes what God's will is is going to be very difficult. Especially if you're tracking with me on what his sovereign will is all about. That that means that when bad things start to happen, you look at the Lord and you say, you allowed this to happen. Your hand is at work somehow in this. This is still going to work out the way you want, but I'm not liking the circumstance I'm in right now. And I'm praying And I'm asking you to change things, and I don't see any change, and that must mean that you've allowed this. And those are moments that test our faith. They test our understanding of who God is and what he's all about. But like Job, he says, you know what? Naked I came into the world, and naked I'm going to leave. Whatever happens, may the name of the Lord be blessed. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we shouldn't try because we don't know. If you've heard the theme of the, we don't know what the sovereign will of the Lord is, it's his will, it's secret, unless he reveals it to us, you don't know the outcome. So for a moment, you see somebody in a bad circumstance, and you're praying, and you go, it must be God's will for this to happen. Does that mean you should not pray? Does that mean you should stop? No. First of all, I think it's permissible and even healthy for us to pray against God's will if we even knew what it was. Now, I told you, I don't think God's will is going to change. I think the answer is it doesn't change, but he allows us to pray against it nonetheless. Why? Well, let's take an example. You're praying for somebody who's close to you, who's sick. You know that they can't be sick unless it was God's will to allow them to be sick. So in your mind, you may be thinking, well, God has allowed them to be sick. You may be tempted to say, all right, then I'm I'm not supposed to pray. I mean, if God's going to let them be sick, then God's going to make them well. He's going to let them die. I mean, what, what control do I have? I'm going home. That's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to pray and say, I want this person to be well anyway, even if it looks like it's not going anywhere. And he gave us a very good example of this. You guys remember the parable of the widow and the judge? Jesus told a story about a widow who went to a judge, and the judge was not a very nice, kind, or righteous judge. And she went to him every single day, asking and begging him to give her justice. And Jesus said that she bugged him so much that he finally gave her what she wanted. Here's the interesting part about it. When Jesus was telling this story and he was telling this parable, he said this is the beginning of it. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That's Luke 18, verse 1. Again, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So the parable of the persistent widow was meant specifically for Jesus to say, look, even an unrighteous judge eventually gave the widow what she wanted. The implication being that God, who is righteous, may do the same thing. The disciples could have said, but Lord, if we understand this thing about sovereignty, I mean, it's all up to you anyway in some way. Yes, but I still want you to bug the heck out of me. Come every day and bug me every day. That's the kind of relationship I want you to have with me. That if a widow could bug an unrighteous judge, when you have a righteous judge like me, come bug me even more. Because you're right. You don't know what's going to happen. But even if you think you know, he still wants us to bug him. Still wants us to drive him to insanity, which is literally what's happening in this story. He gets so exacerbated. He goes, that's it. I just can't do it. Just give her what she wants. Does that mean that God's going to change his will? I don't think that's what it says. He just said, I want to tell you this parable to show you that you should always pray and not give up. It didn't say, and then I'll change my mind. Number two, we shouldn't stop praying. Prayer has many other purposes. Prayer is still a conversation. Prayer is still to glorify the Lord. Lord's Prayer, first priority of prayer, to glorify the Holy Lord who is above us. It has other priorities, not just to get what we want. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, the give us our daily bread is like where? Down here. And it's a priority of things. First, talk about him, his glory. Talk about his kingdom and what we want for it. Talk about his will to be done. Then when you're way down here, you start talking about give us our daily bread. And I think the last one, accepting God's will is not going to be easy because it involves surrender. It involves giving up what we want. And that's part of the purpose of prayer. Part of the purpose of prayer is to come into a place where you have such a relationship with God and you know him that you can actually surrender to give up who you are and what you have and your agenda and put him at the highest level and realize that his will is going to be done and then just saying, I have to surrender. I see that modeled in David. When it was done, he got up and he praised the Lord He put on his clothes, he washed himself, and he went into the temple and he praised the Lord. He spent time with God. That's a hard thing to do. Even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, the purpose of prayer in that context is to surrender and to seek the Lord's fellowship to help give it up. So I don't mean to imply in any way by any of our discussions about God's sovereignty and his control that somehow we should just leave it entirely in his hands. That's going to happen no matter what. We're not going to be able to change it. But he gives us this model. Bug me. Talk to me. Wrestle with me. Surrender. Glorify me. All those things still apply in our conversations. All right. Let's close up and do a little bit more worship Lord, tonight we took everything that you gave us and the things that we have considered and tried to put them together into one cohesive discussion. And it just reminds us that there's no way we can do that. Lord, you're just too, you're too magnificent. You're too great for us to be able to compress and summarize into a small period of time. So Lord, we again come back to where we usually do, which is to appreciate your greatness to appreciate your holiness, to appreciate how much grander you are than any of the designs of our minds, how you just don't fit so nice and neat into the designs of man. And that's beautiful, Lord, because you designed us. We did not design you. So Lord, continue to grow. Continue to let us appreciate who you are. Continue to let us wonder about this great God that we serve until we meet you face to face. And even then, Lord... We will spend eternity in awe and wonder at our great God. Pray these things in your name. Amen.